Now again, during the meditation or during the talk, if ever you feel you need to get up to go to the toilet or anything, please feel welcome to do that. And what happens is that it's almost a test for you to see how mindful, how aware you can be to get up without anyone knowing you've got up, gone through the door, gone to toilets. It's amazing just how quiet you can be and uh, it can be of great use to you later on. If anybody of you wants to get a job in the Australian Secret Service, I can actually write a recommendation and say, well look, they get up in the middle of the meditation, they go through the door until they come back again. And I don't even know they've come or gone. You know, spies can do that. Soldiers can do that. Burglars can do that. You know that once we did have a monk in our monastery, and uh, he came from Nepal. He was a Gurkha. And the Gurkhas are just renowned for being some of the most efficient soldiers. And apparently he said one of their slogans for the Gurkhas is that if when they come, you never hear them come, you never hear them go. Or just when you wake up in the morning and you shake your head, the head falls off. That's the way you know that Gurkhas have been. <laughs> And you know that we ordained him as a monk when he came to visit us. But not because I needed a bodyguard. Because when I asked him, you working in the Gurkhas? What did you do there? And he was in the accounts department. <laughs> <laughs> Even Gurkhas, they need these ordinary people who do the So he never actually fought anybody. But anyhow, he's a very lovely man, a very kind man. But nevertheless, that's just how we can actually learn how to move quietly. If we really want to, it's just a little training we can do to learn how to open doors without any sound, to learn how to come and go without disturbing others. It's amazing just how we can actually do things like that. It's a training in awareness, training in mindfulness. But nevertheless, you know, one of the things which I was going to talk about this evening and see where it goes, because a lot of people were telling me, and I just listened to you and just see what I can teach you, which is of use to you. And one thing I did here, I just talking earlier, just bef you know, before I came in here, that apparently the, the, the lotto is apparently this weekend is... 200, is it 200,000 or 200 million dollars prize? Apparently it's gone up to 200. Is that good? No, it's terrible. <laughs> you know, apparently that there's two beings of very good at lottery numbers. One of those is ghosts. So I'm surprised that not many of you don't go to Karakata or Fremont or into the cemetery there and just sit there for a few minutes and just ask the ghosts for the number out of kindness and compassion. They do do that, you know. There's been lots of evidence that ghosts know the lottery numbers. I don't know, you have to let me know because one of those stories, I tell so many talks in so many places, I want to make sure I didn't tell this story last week about the tsunami ghost. Was it the week before? Okay, but anyway, here it comes. <laughs> this was, you know, because you know, I still got so many friends from Thailand and that's why I ordained. But this was in the town of Grabi in Thailand, so it was the south of Thailand. And late one, actually not late one night, in the middle of the night, this Thai girl had a dream. And her dream was seeing this about 18 or 19 year old English girl. 
and you know she had long blonde hair but it was all tasseled and her her clothes were all torn and there was gashes and bruises and blood all over her body and she said in the dream this a young Thai, this Thai woman remembered everything she said I'm dead I'm dead please help me help me now if that happened when you were fully awake you'd probably run away <laughs> but this was in a dream but she remembered it very clearly help me she said I am dead I'm on my body is now being put in one of the morgues in Phuket Island in one of the temples which were used as morgues right now my mother in London is trying to call me but my phone is in on the bottom of the ocean help me and she said her name and the place the sorry the um, the temple in Thailand where her body was now being stored help me she said I want to have a Buddhist funeral and number two I want you to let my mother know and please don't come and see me yet I want you to wait until the cremation is finished then she can come and collect my ashes I don't want her to see her see me like this and then the ghost gave a series of numbers to this um, uh, this Thai girl in a dream and that's when she woke up it was one of those dreams where she had perfect recall of everything which was said and also the numbers strange enough actually not really strange but I think this is why this ghost chose this girl because she was married to a Westerner, to an Englishman. And so when uh, this Thai wife told her husband she just had this dream and these were the numbers, the husband said, that's a real London telephone number. Give it a call. Now if you know Thai people, no way will they call a number given by a ghost. So she said to her husband, you call. And he did. And it all checked out. It was a lady over in London who had missed her daughter who was on a holiday in Pepe Island when the tsunami hit. And she said, I kind of knew my daughter had died. I could feel that something happened. I saw the news about the tsunami. So that's, it is my name, you've got the right person. I don't know how you could find that out, but please, can you do the ceremony, as my daughter asked, and then let me know, and I'll come and pick up the ashes. And that's what they did. The next day, they drove to Phuket Island. They found that temple which the ghosts had named. And when they went into the temple, the person they saw in the temple looked just like they saw in the dream. And so that's how they could name her. And because the authorities there were desperate to get rid of as many bodies as possible, you know, they cut a few corners and they let them cremate the body. Once the cremation was over, she called the mother in London again and said, the cremation is over now, please come and collect the ashes, which was what she did. There's lots of tears, lots of thank yous. But of course, that's not the end of the story. When they returned to the Gribi, two or three hours drive away from Phuket, when they returned to their hometown, the first night when they went to sleep, the wife had another dream. And this time, this time, the same woman appeared in the dream, but she looked like she'd been to a spa. Her hair was like perfect, like she was going to some big function or dance. And her clothes were perfect. There was no bruises or, or uh, cuts anywhere on her body. And she just smiled in her dream at this uh, Thai woman and said, thank you. 
Look what you've done for me. Thank you for helping me and my mother. And then she says some other numbers. They were not telephone numbers. You, you know what they were? Exactly, those who've heard the story before. It was Thai lottery number. And what did they do? They purchased that number and they made a fortune. That's one story amongst many. So, if you want to get the 200 million, <laughs> go to Fremantle Cemetery or Karakutta, or go down to Pinaru and just go to sleep there, see what happens. <laughs> Are you interested? That would be terrible if you won 200 million. Because sometimes people always feel it would be wonderful to be rich. But why are we monks not rich? Why as monks we've renounced things like wealth? One of my friends, he was actually a monk senior to me. He was a disciple of Ajahn Mahabur. His, he was Canadian and his family were very wealthy. And this was maybe 50 years ago, 40 years ago, it's just when I ordained, 50 years ago. His parents came from Canada. They didn't like him being a monk. So they came with a check for one million dollars. This was 50 years ago. One million dollars was worth a bit then. <laughs> it still is, but it's not as worth as much as it used to be and presented her son with a check. So please disrobe. We don't like you being a monk. He just gave the check back to them. No, I prefer being a monk. There's one of the other monks who has a very, very wealthy family. His father is a telecommunications billionaire over in Malaysia. He used to own, I think he still does, one of the Twin Towers. The government owned the other one. I remember him coming over to Bodhinyana Monastery to visit his son, who was a monk here, who's still a monk. Imagine if your father is a billionaire and you're the only son. He's still a monk. He'd rather be a monk than being a playboy. He would never need to work. He prefers being a monk. I've seen many people like that. Why? Because sometimes we realize that being wealthy is a burden. Part of being a monk in Australia, you get to go to people's houses and bless them. And some of the people I go to whose houses to bless do live in mansions. They're incredibly wealthy. But even though they're wealthy, why would they want to invite a monk? Because they're still suffering. They still don't have any happiness and peace. I remember going to this one lady's house. I think it was over in Shelley, maybe. But it was like this big mansion just on the Canning River. Just beautiful views. And a huge palace of a house. And I remember when I got there, just traveling all the way from Serpentine to do the house blessing for her, I had to go to the toilet. So I just asked, I was sitting down in the room and said, which is the way to the toilet? And this is no exaggeration, she drew me a map. <laughs> go down this corridor, left over there, right over there. That's how big the house was. And these days, they wouldn't need to do that because many rich people, their houses have GPS so you can find your way to the bedroom or to the back garden or wherever you need to go. <laughs> but that, these are all true stories. But the thing I remember about that visit, when I asked the owner of the house, you know, he had so many bedrooms in this house because I have to bless every room sometimes. I said, how many people live here? 
You know her answer? Just me, she said. And that just, that really hurt me. And it hurt me because I felt so sad for this lady. Just you. Can't you have some friends or relations to stay with you? And she said, no. I'm too scared that they would you know, try and get the money from me. She had lots of money, but she was so afraid that somebody would ask something from them. She only invited me there because, you know, my reputation, I don't ask for things. But many other religious people say, well, I've got this important project, can you help? Would you ask for things if you had a relation who was really wealthy? And she said, so many people always ask for things. She can never trust anybody. She never had real friends. When I saw things like that, I realized how wonderful it is to be like an Ajahn Brahm. I just live in a cave. Many of you have seen that. It's about three meters diameter, that's all. It's wonderful to be able to live a simple life. I don't have to worry. My cave is not locked. Anyone can go in there. I don't know what they would steal. I've got two bats in the cave from Ikea. They're cuddly toys. <laughs> Although that once, you know, I've got a meditation cushions like the ones you see here. And I, I just can't figure out people. That one of those cushions was taken to be auctioned. One of the first cushions I auctioned was over in Hong Kong. And if I get to remember right, I think that raised, I think it was 50,000 Aussie dollars for my meditation cushion. And I thought after that, that people said, well, you know, you should, when you leave Bodhinyana Monastery to come to Nolamara, you should make sure you put your meditation cushion in the safe. Which is a crazy idea. No, it's just that people were raising funds from the nuns' monastery, I think, at that time. They really wanted it to happen. It wasn't worth $50,000. It was just an excuse for generous people to come together and raise some funds for a good cause. But it's nice not having things which are expensive. And too often I've seen people, again, in those expensive houses, one of the other people I saw who was extremely wealthy, another wealthy uh, person in Malaysia. And I couldn't believe it when I went to his house to give a blessing. And they had guards on the house. You know what, have you ever seen people with guards on the house in Western Australia? These guards had machine guns. So actually when you went into the house, he had machine guns tra uh, trained on you. And I wondered, am I entering a person's house or is it their prison? Because that's the other place you see guns and stuff, in prisons. Is that the sort of house you'd love to live in? It just, you know, with guards everywhere. And that's what happens. A lot of times wealth separates you from other people. That's one of the reasons, please, 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 never be wealthy. As long as you have enough to kind of pay the bills, or just about to pay the bills, then that's good enough. Extremely wealthy people get isolated from the world. There's some nice stories as well, but there's always some sadness to them. This particular story I heard when I was visiting um, California many years ago. It was about a farmer. This farmer was just you know, driving down one of the back roads of Northern California, and uh, that's where his farm was, and he saw this car had broken down by the side of the road. And the owner of the car was, you know, it was no mobile phone coverage there, but was desperately trying to fix the car. He was stuck. And so the farmer, very kindly, this is what you do over in remote areas. If someone is stuck, you always tend to try and give them a hand. I remember in the early days in Serpentine, you know, we went uh, you know, from Serpentine 
from Apodinyana Monastery to Jaradel on the back road to pick up some wood. The reason why we went on the back road because the wood which we had in a VW van was so much, it was inside, we took all the seats out, was packed inside and on the roof as well. I remember the guy in the woodyard telling me, he said, you guys must do a lot of praying to get that amount of wood back to the monastery over those hills. But also we made sure we went ways where the police didn't go. I think we're pretty much overweight. But nevertheless, this one morning, we passed a car. It was a couple of like elderly tourists from Perth. Their car had broken down between Serpentine Dam and Carnot Prison Farm. It's hardly anybody goes that route, especially at night time. They'd broken down. And they'd been there all night. An elderly couple. Like, go out for a day's drive. They couldn't fix up their car. Fortunately, all they needed was their battery had gone flat, just needed to be charged up. And we did have a couple of jumper leads in the car. So we charged up their car for them. And they gave us these big hugs. Imagine you've been there all night, really afraid, and never seen one car pass you by. And the first car in the morning was a monk, me, and just one of the Anagarikas, the driver. They're just you know, so happy, it's like we saved their lives. And I always remember that, just, you know, just how little acts of kindness can go so far. But anyway, this farmer did something similar to this guy who was uh, broken down by the side of the road. And just the farmers, you know, they know a lot about fixing machinery. And it wasn't a big problem, could fix, the fix up the car. And so the car was mobile again. And the guy who had been stuck there for a couple of hours just thanked them so much. Thank you for helping me. But he didn't actually tell his name. It's only just a few days later that the, the farmer got a letter from his bank. The letter from his bank was telling him that all his loans and debts had been paid off, plus a, sub a substantial amount of credit in his bank courtesy of Mr. Bill Gates, who was the driver of the car. The farmer had never had enough time to watch the TV and know who Bill Gates looked like. And someone like Bill Gates would just love to actually to go driving by himself, a bit of freedom, where no one would know him, so he could you know, just be treated as a human being. And of course, you know, the amount of funds which he deposited in this farmer's bank was very little for Bill Gates, but enormous help, you know, for um, this poor farmer. So the moral of that story is if, especially around Serpentine, if you see a car broken down, who knows? That richest woman in the world. What's her name again? No, in Australia, West Australia anyway. Gina Reinhardt. She lives down there. Hatesbury Stud in Keysborough. That's a, no, Keysbrook. No, Keysborough, yeah, Keysborough. Keysbrook is where Santuti lives. <laughs> she lives down there. Who knows? Who's <laughs> in there? But that's a kind of nice thing to you know when you see that kindness works. But it's also the fact that, you know, these very rich people feel so isolated in this world. If there's a very wealthy person came in here, you know, the, where's uh, the president of our Buddhist society, or if there's a treasurer was here, would you go up to... You know one of the richest people which I've ever seen? was when years ago when I was invited to a state dinner in Parliament House. As during the Melbourne Commonwealth Games, I was well connected at that time, and Queen Elizabeth was there. And just like any, everybody else, I went to the toilet, you know, when I needed to let go of a bit of things. I also do letting go practice. And when you go even to these big gigs, you always have these little labels on your chest, it says who you are. 
And just for those of you who you know, know when you're doing your number one's urination, you're standing up and the guy in the next uh, cubicle to me, I saw his name, Lachlan Murdoch. And I thought, oh, I wish I'd have got a donation envelope. <laughs> <laughs> so you do sometimes see these very wealthy people, but a lot of times, you know, they talk to you because you can talk to them as human beings. You know, just rather than, you know, objects where you can get some money or get some advice or get some financial advantage. And this is one of the reasons why in our Buddhist society, you know, we will never give lottery numbers. Many times, the Thai people, they have this understanding that you can do this sort of stuff. There's many examples of that. There was even to the point that when we had one of our big celebrations many years ago, it was our 30th anniversary of our Buddhist Society of Western Australia. And on that occasion, that we hired the Supreme Court Gardens for our function. And those days, you know, we even invited uh, Mr. Blair, no, not Mr. Blair, sorry, Jeff Gallup. Jeff Gallup, who was the Premier of Western Australia at the time. And he came. He was our VIP at our 30th anniversary in Supreme Court Gardens on Waysack night, full moon night in May. And my job was to make sure we organized, my job was to organize all the tents. And the, so no, it wasn't, that wasn't a job, but to, to be the main organizer of that event. And when it started, it's in May, full moon day. Many of you were there at the time. When I woke up in the morning at Bodhinyana Monastery, it was raining. When I checked the weather forecast, it said the rain was going to get worse. There was a severe weather event which was to hit Perth. That was going to be the center where it crossed the coast at 7 p.m which was the time we were going to start our event. How many of you were there for that? Yeah, Prem, I know you were there. <laughs> you were there for one, one man. Yes, you were there as well. When that actually happened, seven o'clock, that's when we we're going to start our event. We never gave up. We went there and just sorted everything out. And I'll give a big sort of thank you to our Thai community at the time. They didn't mind getting soaking. They were out there putting all the tables together and the tents and electricity as well. And I remember three times, you know, Jeff Gallup's office, the Premier's office, said, are you actually going ahead or are you cancelling? And I think those of you who know me that I don't cancel. And even one of our members who was in the Merchant Navy, that was in O'Brien Creek, he passed away since. But he told me, he said, look, I'm a sailor, I've done sailing all my life. And I checked it out, this is going to be a big storm, you can't go ahead. And I said, no, I'm going ahead. And then even one of the mucks took me aside and said, you're embarrassing us. You know, it's going to be a big storm, we can't go ahead. And I said, we're going ahead. And I remember at the time, is Cherry Jackson here this evening? No, because I remember her mother, so Shirley Jackson, I was in a tent, just doing some work there, and she came rushing in, crying. She said, Ajahn Brahm, you have to come outside. I thought, oh crikey, what's gone wrong now? I always remember that, just about an hour before the ceremony was to start. I thought, what could go wrong now? Maybe someone's electrocuted themselves or something because of the water. When I went outside, she was crying, she couldn't speak, she just pointed up at the sky. The clouds had cleared, 
The rain had stopped. There was a beautiful full moon up in the sky above Supreme Court Gardens. And it was magical. I could understand why she cried. We went ahead with the ceremony and everything worked out perfectly. At the end of the ceremony, those who were there, you know, you know this was true. After the ceremony finished, it started pouring down with rain. And that evening, so much rain fall, fell on Supreme Court Gardens, there was a couple of inches of water, it flooded. And the freeway was closed, that flooded too. And many people, Buddhists, they never came to the ceremony, they were surprised. You went ahead with the ceremony because in their suburbs, trees were coming down, and there were flash flooding. But in Supreme Court Gardens, we did the whole ceremony. And the reason I say that was because the following day, we got all these emails. The people who hired all the equipment for us said, we've never heard of this Ajahn Brahm before, but could you kindly ask him who's going to win the horse racing today? <laughs> I remember that email, it was very funny. And of course, there's no way you would say who's going to win the horse racing. That's not what monks do. And anyway, if you found out, would that really help you? We can use our goodness, our virtue, to do good things for people. But being rich is not one of those good things. Being kind is a beautiful thing to do. So all the time when anybody asks myself or a monk for a lottery number, I remember that people do this all the time. Please don't do this. When I was a forest monk in Thailand, I remember just going, just sitting meditation in a quiet forest and this woman saw me. She came back a few minutes later with a bottle of Pepsi, a piece of paper and a pencil. <laughs> You're laughing because you know what it meant. The piece of paper and pencil was to write a number down. And I said no. So she not only took the paper and pencil away, she also took the Pepsi away as well. <laughs> that was my fee. <laughs> and it's not because you don't want to do things and help people. The main reason we do this is because just the best wealth is like a middle way, where you have enough. And the best house is like a small house. I mention this because I remember growing up in a small house. You may have heard many times that story of my father who said to me, the door of his house is always open to me. His house was like a small council flat in London for poor people. It was, I don't know, you could probably get about 20 of those flats in this, this hall here. Maybe even more, I'm not quite sure, but it was really, really small. So I had no choice except to share a room with my brother or my adult life, or my, my kid's life, sorry, because we couldn't have a room by ourselves, it wasn't, wasn't the space. And I still remember that growing up with my brother, and what a wonderful thing that was. These days your kids have their own room. They don't know how to get on with others. I couldn't escape from my brother. I couldn't escape from my mum and dad either. When they had an argument, you know, it was, they couldn't hide it, you saw it. Even I was a young kid at the time. But one thing I learned from those experiences, living in a small, poor house, I know my father always used to say that you don't need to lock the door, son. The front door of the house, you don't need to lock it. We were so poor that he hoped a burglar would come in, take pity on us and leave something. <laughs> That's what he used to say. But in a small house you had to be so close to the people you loved. And I remember many times seeing my mother and father argue like people do. But you know that never upset me. And the reason was is because I know after a big argument when they wouldn't speak to one another, 
you know, for about an hour or two hours. And eventually, you know, they come to their senses, they see their kids. And when they saw their kids, my father would take my mother in his arms and say sorry. I saw them arguing, but I also saw them making up as well. And I knew that was always going to happen, because they didn't have the space to escape from one another. What that meant for me, that having arguments, differences of opinion, is you know, natural, it's part of a relationship. We won't always agree with one another. The most important thing is learning how to make up afterwards. And everybody see that. I thought that would be wonderful if we could see like Mr. Abbott, not Mr. Abbott, what's it, Mr. Dutton and uh, Mr. Albanese. They have arguments at the end of the parliamentary day, giving each other a big hug. <laughs> Why not? Mr. Trump and Mr. Biden. <laughs> Do you think that could happen? <laughs> Why? Politicians are human beings. <laughs> they may have different ideas. But would you vote for them if you saw them being kind and making up with enemies? and say we have difference of opinion, but that's a part of life, that's nature. It doesn't mean we have to hate each other, or dislike each other, or cause arguments and wars. The person you live with, your husband, your wife, do you always agree together? Or do you have arguments sometimes? You can still love each other, even though you have arguments. How can all the monks at Bodhinyana Monastery, how many have we got now? We had Patimokha a few days ago, and I think it was about, how many was it? 23, 24, 25? I think 25. And we had about six novices as well. So there were 30 young men there. Not all young men, old men as well. We don't always see things the same way. But nevertheless, we can live together in peace and harmony. Because the differences are not as important as having peace and harmony in our world. And I think I learned that you know, from growing up in the same room with my brother. You know, he turned out to be a banker. I turned out to be a monk. And he did tell me many times in his first years as, of his career as a banker, he would never tell what his younger brother did. He said that would be bad for his career. When I said that your younger brother was a monk and renounced the whole world, and he was a banker. But after a while, he became quite proud that I was a banker. And we learned how to, you know, to love each other and be together. So any time I go and visit, I will always stay with him for a day or two, as much time as I can. So this is, doesn't matter about being wealthy or being poor. And in fact, it's much easier being less wealthy. And I say that because sometimes people, they, they sacrifice so much for wealth and power. And so, I'm not sure when the last time I told this story to you, but it's a nice story to you know, finish up this short talk today. It's, you know, it's almost quarter to nine already. And that was the story of the children playing the wishing game. I usually keep this story for retreats, but it's a good story for each one of you to understand what I've been talking about today, about wealth and, and just being simple. So, there was a five children and they had a, you know, an hour or two to spare. So they decided to play this game called the wishing game. And the rules of the wishing game are this, every child has one wish each and the person who comes up with the best wish would win the wishing game. So the first boy said, if I had a wish, I would wish for this new computer game. Because he liked playing computer games. Very good. The second kid, what's your best wish? 
And he said, well, my, my wish was to have a computer game shop. If I had a shop and I owned a shop, I can get a new computer game every week. When the next one comes out, I can get it. That's obviously superior. And there's one thing about playing a game like this. It's always best not to be the first. And the story which I remember about not being the first is the story of the... I'll come back to the wishing game in a moment. Is the story of the monk, the rabbi and the Christian priest. And they wanted to try and create some harmony between the different religions in their area. So they met together for lunch, but then the monk couldn't eat after 12 o'clock. They couldn't have dinner, so they decided to at least meet for a cup of tea in the afternoon. But even that was, you no; know, they weren't really you know, challenging each other. So they decided eventually just to play cards together. And then one thing led to another, and then they started like you know, putting a bit of money on the card games. It was gambling. And that meant it was more interesting for each one of them to, you know, to see you know, who's, uh, how they can live better in harmony. But gambling like that was illegal in that country. So soon they got arrested. And when they got arrested, they had to be put on trial. And it was the, uh, the priest who was asked first in front of the judge a very simple question. You know that gambling is against the law. Were you gambling? What the Christian priest did, he looked up to the heavens really fast, said, Jesus, forgive me. And the judge never noticed it. And he said, no. He says, okay, you're free, walk away. And the next person to be asked was a rabbi. You know, were you gambling? What he did, he put his hands behind his backs and crossed his fingers. I remember doing that at school when he wanted to tell a lie. Somehow or other that made it okay. So the rabbi crossed his fingers behind him and said, were you gambling? He said, no. So okay, you're free. And then it was a Buddhist monk's turn. And I think the judge was getting a bit wise by now. He said, you know, you can't look up into the heavens to ask Buddha for forgive you. That doesn't work in Buddhism. Put your hands in front of you. You can't cross your fingers. You're a Buddhist monk. You have to keep the precepts. You can't lie. So, venerable sir, were you gambling? Without any hesitation, the priest answered, With whom? <laughs> that's, a pre that's how the monk got off the hook. He didn't lie, he told the truth. If you're gambling, you have to be gambling with somebody. <laughs> so, with whom? So, anyway, it's always best to be the last. <laughs> so, the third kid. If you had a wish, what would you wish for? Now you ask your kids if they play too much video games or computer games. If you have that, you always tell your kid, do your homework first and then you can do the computer games. And that was a big problem with kids, they've got to do their schoolwork first. So this kid had a brilliant idea, said, for my wish, I would wish for $10 billion US. With that amount of money, I will buy the video game shop, but then next, this was a brilliant part of his answer, the next thing I buy is my own school. If I own the school and have to pay you know, the teachers, and especially the headmaster or headmistress, if I have to pay the principal, then the principal has to say I'm attending school and getting good marks. If they say you're not coming to school, I'll sack them straight away. And when, I get, when I've finished my own elementary school, then I can buy my own high school. And when I graduate from my own high school, I can buy my own university. You ever notice how many rich people buy their own universities? Why? They give themselves honorary degrees. And he said, all the time I can play computer games, as long as I want. 
That was the third wish. And there's two more kids to go yet. So the fourth girl, she was really smart. And she said, if I had a wish, my wish would be for three wishes. That's a wish. And my first wish, I'll have the uh, computer game shop. My second wish, I'll have the $10 billion US. And for my third wish, I'll have three more wishes. That way I can go on forever. That is the infinity of wishes granted. Can you do better than that? Infinity of wishes, infinity of wishes granted. That is like just, you know, the person being very wealthy or being very powerful. Have you ever noticed why many wealthy people want to enter politics? Because money is not enough. They want the power as well to grant themselves whatever they want, whenever they want it. That's a fourth kid, infinity of wishes granted. There was another kid in this game. And this fifth kid came up with a wish which was clearly surpassing the kid who wanted infinity of wishes granted. And that kid said, if I had a wish, I wish I was so happy and content I never needed any wishes ever again. That's the Buddha. So content you don't need any wishes ever again. That's much better than winning, what is it, 200 million on the Australian lottery. It's much better than becoming the President of the United States infinite power. It's much better than anything. Being so happy and content, you don't need anything. That's why I will never give you a lottery number. Thank you for listening. <laughs> okay, sorry. Any questions on this? Yes, don't ask what's the lottery number, Prim. Yeah, Prem's got a question. Uh, thank you, Ajahn. Um, now, the karmic consequences and the, uh, the virtue on the, on the practice of virtue by one, um, could you please try to connect the actual the consequences or the Dhamma uh, by investing or, or trying to play this jackpot or buying lotteries. <laughs> also considering that the lotteries department do some social service with their profits yes. or something like that. And um, yeah, wh 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 why is it important for Buddhists? What's important for Buddhists to win the lottery? Important. No, 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 no. <laughs> No. Well, the virtuous practices and the karmic results. Well. Yes, indeed. Yeah. The, the karmic results. That is true. That you know the West Australian lottery gives a lot of money to um, people who do. Even to many many years ago, our retreat centre down in um, Jana Grove, we got a grant from the Lotteries Commission. You know, but what they were saying, this wasn't actually from people's winnings. This was like unclaimed sort of winnings which they get. So anyway, um, so sometimes there's some karmic consequences, you know, for people. Most people, if they enter a lottery, sometimes they do that never expecting to win. Like sometimes we have like raffles. I remember doing raffles in our Buddhist society many years ago. I never kind of liked those things because sometimes people just wanted the prizes. Whenever we have these, um, ra not raffle, yeah, raffles or auctions for things like I was saying, my uh, cushion, a lot of times, once a person won it, they would give it back again to be re-auctioned. There's a lot of stuff I've been trying to get rid of for years even little teddy bears, 
I got my teddy bear which was given to me for my 70th birthday. I think that's been auctioned about two or three times. And whoever won it, they gave it back to me. Please re-auction it again. It was just a way of making donations. A fun way of raising money for a good cause. I just made sure I never used any of that money for myself or for anything which is personal. It had to be for some other monastery or for some other good cause. So now sometimes we do do raffles and sometimes we do do um, even lotteries. But please, if you do a lottery, many people do it anyway, please do it not expecting to win anything. Knowing that that money will go to some good cause somewhere. If you do it expecting to win, that's where things all go wrong. It's just a way of doing charity for our world. But you know, sometimes I wonder why the government does that. These things are all like government run, somewhere along the line. And it's much better if instead of the government is like taking money from people in their, in their taxes, they can somehow save some money somewhere else. So important courses like hospitals don't need to be run from lotteries. Find other ways of doing that. And the karmic consequences sometimes that people, they do you know, believe that they're going to win something and sometimes they don't and they become in really deep financial trouble. People who go to casinos say, I remember this other story which I love telling about this man who he dreamt of a, of a being and in the dream the being said, go to the casino, go to the casino. And he thought it was just a dream, but when he woke up he heard the same voice say to him again, go to the casino, go to the casino. He heard it very clearly, he doesn't usually imagine sounds or voices. So he got in the car, went to the casino, down in Burswood. And he said, he heard as he walked in the door, he heard this being again, he could hear it, no one else could, said to him, go to roulette table, go to the roulette table. So he went to the roulette table, and then he heard the being say, Put $10 on number 16. Put $10 on number 16. So he put $10 on number 16. The croupier put the ball you know, in the wheel. It went round and round and round. And the ball landed in number 16. And you could hear this sound, like the spirit say, Yes! Yes! put all the winnings on number 23. Put all, he was the only one who could hear this. Put all the winnings on number 23. So, he put all the winnings on number 23. The croupier put the ball in the wheel, twirled the wheel, and the ball went round and round and round. And it landed in number 23. And he could hear the sound so loudly, no one else could hear it. Yay! 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 Said the spirit in his ear. No one else could hear it. But by now, he's getting a lot of attention. And you could hear the spirit say, "Put everything, everything on number 17." So he put all the money on number 17. A huge bet. And when he put all the money on number 17, a big crowd was forming around him. If this number came up, he'd be just a millionaire. So the croupier put the ball in the wheel, twirled the wheel around, and the ball went round and round and round. And he almost stopped, his heart beating, he was so excited. And even other people, they were just so excited too. This was a huge bet. And the ball went round and round and round. And the ball landed on number 17, but then it jumped out and went into number 18. 
and he was the only one who heard the spirit said oh shit <laughs> even spirits make mistakes so you can't trust them either <laughs> was that really answering your question I don't really think so no 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 <laughs> I, was, I was after them actually but uh, I mean Attachment, isn't it, or letting go? It's a, it's like danger. It's attachment, yes, but it's always this wanting desire, and you want so much. Eventually, just you know, you always eventually lose, and the quicker you lose, the better. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Which means you give up. Thank you, Ajahn. Thank you. Okay. Thank you. Uh, another question? I think questions from the computer. Thank you. The question is from our Lotteries Commission. I'm sorry. <laughs> from Poland. Is it possible to help someone else heal? ease pain through our own meditation. I know I can heal myself, but can I also help a relative? Thank you. Yeah, you can do, but you can't have uh, always be able to heal another person. Because that's one of the problems with um, being a healer, even being a doctor, or you know, just having some powers to spread loving kindness to others. Sometimes it can work, but not always. Which is one of the reasons why I've taught for so many years. If you are a healer or a doctor or a monk, the only thing you can really do all the time is to care for other people. And sometimes the karma is too strong, you can't stop that illness or you can't stop that sickness, but you can always care for people. And always remember that. And which means that you know, if the sickness doesn't heal or the person does die, at least they die knowing they're being cared for. So their future lives in their next birth will be a much more beautiful place. But sometimes it's worth trying, giving a go, because sometimes amazing things happen. And heal other people. I still remember that story of going to the ICU in Royal Perth many years ago. And it was an elderly Chinese person who was really sick, he's in a coma, and the family just asked me, look, please, he's in big trouble, can you do some chanting for him? So I went into the ICU room, and I should have asked the family first of all for more information, but I did some chanting and meditation for this guy, and he came out of the coma. It was almost like miraculous. And that's when the trouble started. Because all the family, they'd already arranged this funeral service. And they come from many different countries. And they say, we never wanted you to cure him. We wanted you to make him die peacefully. So they, they never invited me back again. I never get any donations for the monastery. They couldn't get rid of me quick enough. But I learned my lesson. If ever I go to the ICU next time, I'd always ask you, please, what chanting do you want? <laughs> die peaceful or get better. A different chance. <laughs> the next is Travis Dale from Singapore. Hi Ajahn Brahm, how does one maintain discipline and heedfulness on the spiritual path? The best discipline is when you enjoy what you're doing. You find fun and joy and fulfillment in it. That's why, look, honestly, I enjoy meditating, even though it's Half an hour meditation I did at the beginning here, that was really good fun. You're sitting there, you're relaxing your body, and it gets really at ease. If you have any problems in the body, they disappear, you get beautiful mind states afterwards. And being kind to others, you get so much joy back. You know, even all the talks which I give, even the ones which, you know, maybe not as good as other ones, nevertheless, I get so much joy and satisfaction of being of service to others doing the very best I can. So my spiritual path and heedfulness, it becomes natural. It's never forced. 
is a lot of joy being good and kind to others. Even like simple things. Just last weekend when I was here, just on a Sunday, that somebody gave me this big bowl of ice cream. It was a hot day, I like ice cream. But I saw a couple of kids, you know, at the Sunday afternoon dana, and they could see the ice cream. Uh, Sompop told them that if they work hard and help out, they can get these icy poles. And the icy poles are okay for kids, but no, real ice cream is, you know, much more delicious for them. And I couldn't stop myself just by giving the ice cream to them. Here you have it. And just the brother and sister, and they just shared it together. I got so much more joy out of renouncing ice cream, which I really liked, than eating it myself. Have you ever experienced that? Now you've got something you really like, but somebody else is there and they really enjoy it too. So you give it to them. That's not discipline. That's me indulging in the joy of giving. And with kids it's great. They came up afterwards. They said, oh, thank you, Ajambra. That was really sweet. I haven't forgotten that. If it was the ice cream, I'd have forgotten that a long time ago. And last one from Fiona Nichols. Dear Ajahn, I have been practicing Vipassana meditation and it has cured my pain. Do you know why this is? What is the process behind this? That, I'm not quite sure what the process is, but it works. So if it does work, remember it. A lot of times it is because, you know, you're not adding to the pain by trying to get rid of it. That's the old Empress Three Questions. No, sorry, that's the old anger-eating monster simile. The anger-eating monster, I think you should all know by now, because I tell it every other week, not every week, but every other week, is when a big monster comes into the palace, and the guards say, get out of here, you don't belong. And every unkind word, unkind deed, unkind thought, the monster gets a little bit bigger every time. Bigger and more violent. And when the Empress came back into the, comes back into the palace, she knows exactly what to do. She says, welcome, monster. Thank you for coming to visit me. She gives the monster kindness instead of trying to get rid of it. That relaxes it. And when it relaxes, it often just disappears. That's time with all types of meditation. We don't try and get rid of things, we try to understand them. And we give them kindness as well, even aches and pains. And as you, you, know, you can understand in just medicine, if you're kind to things, everything gets relaxed around the wound or around the injury or around the virus, just relaxing it through kindness gives a lot of possibility for pain disappearing and health happening. It's weird, but it, it's true. So many times, I remember just being on, with a toothache. I was only a toothache, but it was driving me crazy. One night, the first night I was in a monastery, no, first year I was a monk in the monasteries in Northeast Thailand. You go to the, the medicine cabinet, there's no medicine in there. It's a poor monastery. No Panadora aspirin or anything. And then the next thing, which I looked for, was actually trying to do some chanting. The chanting never worked. The meditation was too painful. You know, your mouth was exploding in pain. And I tried everything I knew until I remembered just the words which most spiritualities use. Let go. And so I was trying everything and I was desperate. Let go. I just noticed that word and I let go. And the toothache disappeared in a, in a, less than a second, in a moment. It was one of those experiences which I will never forget. Just how powerful this mind is. And it was replaced not just with blankness, with like bliss. Weird. One moment your mouth was exploding in pain, the next minute you were like happy as if you'd taken some drug. And I've seen that too many times, when you really know how to let go, things vanish. 
replaced by kind of joy and just happiness. Because everything relaxes, you don't add to the pain. You're not trying to get rid of the anger-eating monster, which is pain. The more you say, get out of here, you don't belong, the worse it gets. Okay, there's the three questions here. Any questions from anybody in our, my audience today? Going, going. Okay, gone. So I think many people might want to go and see the fireworks. Have they started yet? Finished? Oh, wow, I've never heard a thing. What time are they supposed to start? Oh, 8.30, okay. You can see them on the TV tonight. Sorry? Okay. So anyway, 8 to 8.30, whatever. But anyway, we can now pay respects to Buddha, Dharma and Sangha. And then afterwards, any questions you want to ask, please come up. <laughs>